You are tuning in to an archived episode of the Tommy's Outdoors Conservation and Science Podcast. After you finish listening to it, why not take a moment to listen to one of the most recent episodes? I'm sure you'll enjoy it. This is Tommy's Outdoors, episode 20, and it is a landmark episode. Why? Well, because I read somewhere, not long ago, that most of the new podcasts never make it to episode 20. Well, we just made it to episode 20. And so I would like to thank all the listeners for being with us uh, for 20 episodes and all our followers on Twitter and Instagram and Facebook. And um, I hope you're going to continue to enjoy the podcast. And I'm working hard to bring you the best in the outdoors podcasting. So that's the first thing. Secondly, it is no secret that one of the missions of the Tommy's Outdoors podcast is to talk about wildlife conservation, habitat protection, and all the issues related to protecting Mother Nature. And um, our guest today is Porik Fogarty, uh, the campaign officer at Irish Wildlife Trust. He's also an ex-editor of Irish Wildlife magazine and author of the book Whittled Away, Ireland's Vanishing Nature. You can you can uh, get that book on Amazon or on Irish Wildlife Trust website. So I was very uh, happy uh, um, that Porik uh, kindly accepted my invitation to the podcast. And not only did he accept the invitation, he extended that invitation to me and invited me to his house. Um, so we recorded a podcast in his house and essentially... We just hang out together for uh, for you know most of the day. We ate dinner together, and uh, we had a plenty of opportunity to talk about um, conservation and and various various issues related to wildlife. Um, so the podcast is very interesting, and we're we're really covering a lot of ground. Uh, we're talking about deer management. We're talking about shark handling. Uh, we talk about budger calling, and many other uh, issues related to wildlife. So um, this is this is I think very good episode with a lot of important information, and um, please support the Irish Wildlife Trust. I became a member of the Irish Wildlife Trust after that after recording that episode. It's only a couple of a uh, couple of bucks, um, and uh, I think that these guys are doing really good job, and and they're really doing it professionally, and they know how to approach various issues. So uh, please support Irish Wildlife Trust. And uh, other than that, uh, ladies and gentlemen, Porig Fogarty. Welcome to the show. Porik Fogarty, how are you? I'm very good, Tommy. Thank you very much for inviting me on. Uh, thank you for extending that invitation mm. to actually be in your in your home uh, in uh, Dublin. Um, Porik, I'm not gonna lie. I'm very excited for that podcast. And uh, like uh, we were we were having a chat before we started recording, and uh, there is no secret that I think that the part of the mission of Tommy's Outdoors is talk about conservation and you know protection of animals, protection of wildlife. And uh, and talking about these issues and and make all people um, aware of that. So you're a campaign officer at Irish Wildlife Trust. 
That's right. Yeah. Um, so maybe I'm, maybe you can you can just tell us what what Irish Wildlife Trust is and what you're doing there. Sure. Um, Irish Wildlife Trust is one of quite a small number of environmental non-governmental organizations uh, in Ireland. It's been around since the 1970s. It was set up by people like um, Eamon de Butler and Garrett van Geldren, who were very well known in Ireland at that time during the 70s and 80s uh, for, for bringing wildlife awareness to Ireland. Mm. Um, we see our mission in the IWT as being to raise awareness of wildlife and uh, to uh, highlight the importance of wildlife to people as well, because that's, yeah. you know, people were a part of the environment. So, so that's very much uh, how, what we see our mission as. Mm, okay, and what is it that you do in the in the Irish Wildlife Trust? Uh, the campaign well, officer is. Uh, I'm the campaign officer. I was the uh, chairman of the Irish Wildlife Trust for a number of years, uh, starting nearly ten years ago now. Um, I was editor of their magazine until last year, and uh, when I stopped being uh, chairman. Um, because I quite enjoyed the campaign work and mm-hmm. and, uh, and the the outreach part of it, so uh, so uh, I, I was asked to continue being a campaign officer. So right. that's pretty much what I do at the moment. Yeah. And what the campaign work is like? So can you can you describe like what type of campaigns and and what it what it's like? How does it work? And yeah, um, there's a number of, of broad areas we work on. Uh, one would be let's say for instance badger culling. Hmm. So actually, for many years, the Irish Wildlife Trust has been campaigning to stop badger culling. Badger yeah. cull- badgers are culled to, uh, 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 in the name of controlling uh, TB and cattle, which yes. we believe doesn't work anyway. That's a long story, but that that is one of the areas that we work on. We work on general agricultural policy as well, because mm-hmm. um, Ireland is very much an agricultural country. So yeah. um, agriculture is going to have an enormous influence on our outdoors and our environment for good or ill. So, yeah. uh, so agriculture culture is always going to be an important area and uh, we uh, we do a lot of work on our national parks yeah as in trying to promote better protection of our natural national parks and uh, and the last big area that we work on is uh, is the marine environment so uh, despite being an island nation uh, we don't have an enormous emphasis on the sea in Ireland and uh, that's surprising yeah yeah it, it, it is uh, I mean a uh, uh, for instance, uh, you know, a lot of people uh, like to eat fish, but they'd have enormous disconnect as to, you know, thinking about where their fish comes from. Or oh, that's that, that's not, that's or, that's not only that's not only when it, when it comes to fish; it's also when it comes to meat and in general products. Yeah, maybe, maybe, right. yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, but I think I think there is generally a low level of awareness about the ocean. Oh, and, no doubt, no um, doubt, uh, and the sea and what goes on at sea and why it's important and all these yeah. things. And there's various reasons for that. But uh, but yeah, they would be the main issues that we work right. on. Right. And okay, that's that's excellent. Listen, we get to the to the sea in in, in a second. But you mentioned badger calling. Mm-hmm. Can you? Tell tell us a little bit about what is the issue. So, as far as I know, um, TB is to bind tuberculosis. Tuberculosis, tuberculosis, yeah, bovine tuberculosis, which which is a cattle disease, and apparently, or you know, like a lot of farmers think that the badgers are spreading or 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 causing this this disease to spread to cattle. Mm. 
tell me is it true is it not true is it is it only small aspect of it like how how because the same thing is with deer right well um uh, any mammal can carry bovine tb or or tb um tb was mainly a problem for people uh, up until the 1950s a lot of people died from tb um across europe and in ireland um and then there was a vaccine invented for tb yeah. and uh, and tb in people more or less has disappeared uh during the 1980s tb became a big problem in uh cattle yeah. and uh it was concluded that um uh that badgers also carry tb and that in order to control tb in cattle they had to control the badgers now at the time this is the 1980s this conclusion was drawn very reluctantly a lot of people didn't want to bring badgers into the equation mm. because the the cattle gave tb to the badgers originally yes now over the decades a lot of people have forgotten that uh uh badgers were only ever thought to be a very small part of the problem yeah. um and so today uh badgers are seen as being the main problem now the un inconvenient truth is that we're still very much with tb in cattle and in fact lately tb rates have gone up in cattle mm. this is despite nearly 30 years of culling badgers and we we kill about six seven thousand badgers every year um across the country is is there is there uh, the number of badgers to be called is how how does this figure out is there num numbers any any uh uh, research is done or someone says like okay this is how many badgers we have in that area so we taking 10% or like well it, or is it generally much the way open it works is that if uh, if a farm uh, comes down with TB the Department of Agriculture will move in and they will start culling badgers so they don't necessarily have target numbers of badgers to kill oh, so it's okay. more or less reactive okay. uh, in so that that's way. bad right because because even if you if you're calling you need to know what is the population and how many animals you can take out of the population? Well, we don't we don't know how many badgers there are in Ireland. Really, there have there are kind of guest numbers right. about the population, but they've never been surveyed properly. Right. Um, and then, of course, we have millions and millions of cattle, and the cattle herd is growing, and uh, agriculture is becoming more intensive. Many of the cases of TB uh, in cattle are only detected at the slaughterhouse, which means that that cow mm -hmm. or uh, animal has been living in the herd all its life, uh, yeah. potentially spreading the disease to its neighbors. Etc. Uh, so the testing regime just isn't good enough, and that, from our mm -hmm. point of view, that would be the main yeah. um, reason why we still have a TB problem, and really yeah. it has very little, if nothing, to do with badgers yeah. at all. Uh, yeah, it sounds like is is the badger population endangered in Ireland because of it? Because it seems, based on what you're saying, like we don't know how many badgers are there, and when the TB is detected, uh, they, the the government moves in and they start shooting badgers mm. without any number. So that surely is not good. Um, the Department of Agriculture themselves have admitted that um, the TB program, the culling program, is not sustainable from the badger's point of view. Oh. And that it is leading to uh, reduced populations of badgers in certain areas. Now, I'm not okay. going to say the badger is an endangered species. It's not. There are still plenty of places where badgers are... are um, okay are common but uh but nevertheless we have large areas of the country where badgers are being mm. uh eradicated at, at great public expense uh with no particular results to report you know because because yeah. tb is still a major problem yeah because they're only part of a mm. part, part of part of a problem okay 
Um, so that's that's good to hear that they're not at least in the endangered. In the, mm. Are badger protected? Yes, yeah, they, they're protected species, so so they are not classified as as uh, vermin, I presume. No, no, they're, they've been a protected species in the 1970s. The Department of Agriculture needs a license uh, to cull the badgers, but what we found out through our uh, research is that basically. They're given the license uh, every year, rubber stamped. There's mm -hmm. no oversight of the culling yeah. program. Um, there's no conservation assessment. So very, there's very little being done to protect the badger in all of this. Yeah. And Irish Wildlife Trust is dealing with, with issues like that and trying mm -hmm. to campaign to exactly to put a, put a little... Okay, okay. Mm -hmm. So maybe now is a good moment to say, like, how if, if, if right now one of the listeners says, like, well, this is great. How can I support Irish Wildlife Trust? How they can support work? Well, the best thing you can do is uh, is become a member. Mm -hmm. It's a membership organization. So I think the uh, the joining fee is around thirty five euro a year, and um, and that is the most direct way you can of, of supporting us. And uh, and then in return you get our wonderful magazine and you get to uh, join in our events throughout the year. Right, right. It's 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 pretty much like a like a shark trust. So I'm a member of a shark trust. And and speaking about sharks, because that's a little bit how how we come to even recording that podcast. Um, when I moved to Ireland 11 years ago, I uh, discovered that there are actually sharks around uh, Ireland, right? Atlantic Ocean. So, which wasn't that that obvious because then uh, uh, I was talking when, when, with a, with a, a lady, young lady. She was, she was a teacher in elementary school. And she said, "There's no sharks here. What are you talking about? There's no sharks here." And I and I showed her a photo of me with a shark. I said, "Like, no, it's not possible. There's not this. this, this you know, what, what is this? There's no sharks here." I said, like, "Oh God, she's a teacher in a school, right?" But anyway, so I learned there are the sharks, and and um, so obviously I quickly discovered there is a huge number of people who are doing shark fishing, uh, and there are charter boats, and I found a. Uh, uh, charter boat and with a skipper who later become my my good colleague, and uh, I I went mad shark fishing. I was doing like a ten trips in a season. So essentially, in the season when the blue sharks are around, it's like you know, uh, charter boat every weekend. Um, so that was great. But immediately, what what I've done, I read the book called uh, Sharks in British Waters, I think, and that from that book I learned there's something like shark trust, and so I. It was it was like very natural to me. Like okay, if I'm, if I'm interacting with the animal, I, I want to learn something. And an immediate question is like, okay, how many there out there, right? Are there there's a popular is it popular? So this is a little bit like my questions about the badgers. Like, what is the number? Is it sustainable? Are they endangered? Should we even fish for them, etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera. Um, so so that that's that's very natural and I, and I think that the Irish Wildlife Trust is 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 a little bit like that organization just become a member and then you have a magazine but uh primarily you supporting the work towards conservation either in Irish wildlife in that case or sharks. Um so how it started was a, I think it was a tweet on 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 Twitter where um there was a report of anglers catching many uh parbigal sharks and a, and a parbigal shark uh, i think it depends on the population they're either listed as threatened or an endangered species and um and a comment on the tweet was oh it's uh 
it's reported as a catch of the lifetime, but really it shouldn't be, you know, they, they shouldn't be caught by anglers because they're endangered and threatened. And then I tweeted like, well, yes, but they are still exploited commercially. And I think then you jump in and, and we kind of started talking about it, how uh, my point was like hunters and anglers are really an ally or should be allies in conservation of, of not only marine wildlife, but in general in the wildlife. And, um, and yeah, I suppose you, I don't want to put the mouth in your words in your mouth, but I suppose your point was like, it's not always happening. It's, it's sometimes happening when it's enforced, like in the salmon fishery, in the shark fishery, there's actually no regulations in the shark fishery. So then it's like, oh, would you like to come on a podcast? And this is how, how it happened that we're sitting at a table. So tell me what's your, what's your point of view and maybe in general about the shark population, species of shark, and is it good, bad, indifferent, and, and how these issues look and from, from your perspective? Yeah, well, just to maybe zoom out a bit, um, I mean, people are familiar with sharks, but they're an incredibly diverse group of animals. There's hundreds of types of sharks around the world. And in Ireland, I can't remember what the exact figure is, but it's, it's over 50 different types of yeah. sharks. And then you've got rays as well, and they're kind of related species. And uh, most of these animals are top predators mm. in the ocean. So they play the same role as, you know, lions and tigers do on land. And the more we learn about ecology and how ecosystems work, the more important we realize the top predators are in any ecosystem. And so sharks are really, really important for healthy oceans. Uh, they also have unusual uh, lifestyles. So a lot of sharks uh, live for a long time. A lot of them have live babies mm -hmm. and uh, they don't have very many babies. So it means that when you uh, start drawing down a shark population or when a population starts shrinking, mm -hmm. it takes an awful lot longer for that population to recover because yeah. uh, they, they have long uh, gestation periods. For instance, one of the sharks we have in, in Irish waters, the, uh, the spur dog, mm. has the longest gestation period of any animal known. Yeah. Uh, it was over two years, which is incredible. Is spur dog the, the fish that, was, that the stocks were so depleted because they were, they were being caught as a part of like fish and chips? They were called rock, right. rock salmon. Yeah. Yeah. So rock salmon, that, mm. was, that was actually spur dog. And, and, I, and I know history from, from, uh, from our friend who is running charter boat that there was, a, I think in County Clare, the whole fleet showed up and they kind of wiped out the spur dogs and they, they move on to the next big thing. And mm -hmm. it, would, it would take years and years and years before like a single spur dog was caught again by mm -hmm. anglers. Yeah, that's right. People were, were eating it as, as rock salmon, um, but and the population crashed. So the spur dog is one of those endangered species. And it is taking, it may be recovering, we don't really know, but it, it'll take a very long time because of the, the life history of, of the animal. And a lot of the rays as well would share that, uh, with that, would share that feature. They live for a very long time mm -hmm. and they have very few babies. Um, so the other thing to know about sharks and rays is that they're one of the most threatened groups of animals uh, in Ireland or in Irish waters or in the North Atlantic. About 60% of the species of sharks and rays are threatened with extinction to one degree yeah. or another. So this is enormous. Um, the average would be around a, a third. So, um, so they're very, very threatened. Um, so what we're left with now, even though there's no uh, commercial fishing for sharks in Irish waters, and even though anglers who are targeting sharks are 
I, w- I would say 100% of the time they're putting the animals back alive. There's no, it's not like the, the 1960s where the animals were, were killed to, mm-hmm. to be brought ashore, to be weighed. So even though those things are happening, the populations of many of the species are very, very low. Uh, the poor beagle shark you mentioned, for instance, is critically endangered. Mm. Now, critically endangered is, uh, you know, it's, it's one step towards complete extinction. Yeah. Uh, so the situation is very, very precarious for these species. Mm-hmm. Just on the poor beagle, just to stop for the poor, poor beagle for a second, is that the population around Irish water that is critically endangered? Because there's like a two populations of, of uh, poor beagle shark. I don't know, is the east and western population. So, and one of them is critically endangered. The other one is, is just threatened or just endangered. That's right. There are different populations around the world of poor beagle sharks, but in Irish waters, uh, it's classified as critically endangered. Critically endangered. Yeah. But they're still being taken as a, by commercial fishermen. Well, not legally, they're not. Um, it, it is illegal to land a poor beagle shark. Oh, it is illegal. In the European Union, yes. Okay, yeah. okay. But then they're being part of like a, as, as a bycatch. Well, of course, there's all kinds of fishing going on. There's very little yeah. supervision. If, okay, uh, so this interesting thing that you said that in the European Union, it's illegal, but... You go to the and you even see that the fo- photographs of the of the fish market in Spain and you have a you know like a boxes of barbigle sharks there. Well, that 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 shouldn't be happening. But um, I, I I can't doubt you. We had a situation here uh in the last 12 months where somebody sent us a photograph of a poor beagle shark yeah. um in a supermarket in Dublin. Okay. And uh, when we contacted the supermarket, uh, they they uh, they told us that they were very conservation minded, but they didn't know what kind of an animal it was, and they didn't know it was a poor beagle shark, and they didn't know it was critically endangered, and they didn't know it was illegal to have it on the on the um, on the fishmonger slab. So, is it sorry? Is it illegal to have it in the, in, in and sell poor beagle full stop, or is it illegal to sell Irish water cod? caught poor beagle because then you you know you you open it clearly oh yeah but it was caught some caught somewhere else the, the illegal bit is landing it yeah so it is illegal to land a poor beagle shark and some other species as well now by the time it gets to the, the mm. supermarket i mean we reported this to the the authorities at the time and yeah. um, they did an investigation but they felt they didn't have enough evidence to actually bring a prosecution <laughs> um but to me it showed the lack of awareness about oh, these amazing animals and the threats that they're under and you know that uh, that a supermarket that could think of itself as being conservation minded to have done this yeah. tells me that there's you know there there are there are uh, problems there. Yeah. Well, I don't think I think it's just their line or their conservation minded, regardless of anything. Well, that's because, quite true. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> because they they don't know. Okay, that's 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 very interesting. So you mentioned that in in general in your work, I suppose, do you see anglers uh, or or maybe wider hunters and anglers, the outdoorsmen in general, as a as an allies in the work? Or as an enemies who are, you know, if we remove them, they're not gonna, they, you know, there's, there's one, one less element to, to worry about 
like how from the from the perspective of Irish Wildlife Trust or from your perspective how do you see, how do you see that relation oh we we certainly don't see anglers as enemies anglers are the, are the people who know more about um what's happening at sea than anybody else and and commercial fishermen too um and we know that most anglers are are very very conservation minded mm. so uh, we don't have any beef with anglers we don't have any difficulty with, with anglers we do have um what we would like to see is better regulation and this yeah. goes for anything that happens in the sea whether you're catching fish commercially or whether you're doing it for for mm. recreation that there needs to be proper measures in place to make sure that conservation comes first yeah and i think uh, most anglers uh, wouldn't have any difficulty with that yeah um so we do see bad practices uh sharks for instance are very sensitive to being uh hauled out of the water yeah they're not designed to be out of the water yeah so catching them and and, and they're not designed they're not um evolved to be caught they're top predators so for a shark to be uh you know caught on the end of a hook uh, and dragged out of the sea is a stressful thing mm-hmm. for for a shark no doubt. um we know so there's not a lot of research but we know uh, there is some research on certain types of skates for instance that yeah. when they suffer that stress they abort their babies All right. Uh and that uh, that happens. I know that stingray is particularly uh vulnerable. It's is par- particularly sensitive to stress as well. Mm. Stingray. That's it. Uh, and then so so the point of all, of all that is that if you're going to catch uh, a shark, you know, handling it properly and being able to manage it properly is really really important. Yeah. And um we see in northern ireland at the moment for instance there's a there's a there's a project going on to try and uh, uh train anglers in good handling practices and uh and tagging and all of that how they're doing that and then with the, the ideally should be lifted off the water with the in a kind of like a cradle or or something right that's that's the that's the idea i know there's a shark trust video online how to properly handle shark and they they have a special device like a like a cradle when they kind of putting that under the shark yeah. and lifting it out of the water this way. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you should never use a hook to to uh, grab the animal mm-hmm. out of the water. Mm-hmm. Uh, the animal should be horizontal mm-hmm. at all times yes. because they don't have uh, a rib cage. Yeah. So, uh, and they're, because they're evolved to be in water, suddenly if they're on dry land and they're turned upside down or they're you know, hauled up by their fins, their their innards basically slush to the bottom of their bodies. Yeah. And that puts their heart under tremendous strain mm-hmm. and um and they can die from that kind of thing so mm-hmm. um so they're the kind of things that they recommend the shark trust recommends is you don't lift the animal at all mm-hmm. so you have to remember for instance that if we're putting conservation first um the most important thing is not to get a photograph of the thing you've just caught mm-hmm. the most mm-hmm. important thing is to get the animal back in the water as quickly mm-hmm. as possible and uh and i don't have a difficulty with this with the sport angling element of it and or even taking a photograph of it but certainly i don't feel uh, i don't believe that the animal should be lifted up or hauled mm-hmm. into the air mm-hmm. uh, just for the sake of a photograph mm-hmm. and, a, and a social media moment yeah. Yeah. Uh, and as i say i go back to the point that we're not talking here about um pollock and cod we're talking about some of the most endangered species on the planet mm-hmm. uh so for instance you wouldn't dream of you know licensing hunting white rhinos or mm-hmm. uh, or bengal tigers mm-hmm. uh, and yet uh, we can go out and catch these animals um off our shores with no regulation whatsoever yeah 
I suppose that's a that's a big problem, and 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 also commercial pressure on that is a is is a is a problem because there is this argument, and and you know it'd be interesting to hear your your opinion about that. But you know, regardless what you do, like even if you you know get anglers at it, wild west style, and you can you know kill every single shark you're gonna catch and so on. Um, that's still just minuscule compared to what is happening. Uh, through the commercial sector, is that your opinion that the that there's a disproportion here? And but it, because I think that the part of that, and you know, I completely agree with your sentiment that, and and this is kind of repeated, and which I'm very happy to hear that from you. And I heard that before, that you know, anglers and and people who are out there interacting with the nature, interacting with those animals, know probably more than anyone else because they're there every day or every weekend. Uh, um, but I think that the, the the part where most often you hear the pushback is like, well, why you, they, they, they feel like they're easy target while you're pushing back on us, you know, I, oh, I, I, you know, there's this and that measures proposed or introduced or recommended while commercial fishermen are going out there and they're catching this many tons of sharks that are then being discarded or whatever else. Um, what's what's your what's your view on that? Um, I mean, I, I would totally agree. Commercial f- fishing in general is uh, the biggest pressure yeah. on our oceans. It's no. tough because how you how you influence that? There's a there's a this is like an economy. This is this is like a economy of a country, and you have a minister who deals with that. So that must be very hard to influence and do anything about it. Well, commer- uh, commercial fishing, industrial fishing is regulated. Uh, you know, you have the common fisheries policy. You've got, you know, quotas and all these kind of things. You've got areas where they're allowed to go. Mm-hmm. Now, the quotas are like a five times over scientific recommendation. Uh, yeah, uh, yeah, of course. And, and, and the other problem is that we don't know what's happening out at sea. So particularly when it comes to bycatch. Yeah. And industrial fleet, like you see these super trawlers coming out. They could be dragging anything out of the sea. Yeah. Um, and and we, we just don't know what's, what's going on. But... Um, Take, for instance, um, uh, uh, common skate, flapper yeah. skate, yeah. I think is what they're called uh, these days. Uh, flapper skate are critically endangered mm-hmm. species. Um, they've disappeared from the Irish Sea. Um, they may be recovering around the southwest coast because mm-hmm. uh, we see more of them. Now, boats know where these skates are mm-hmm. and... Uh, they may be targeted every weekend. So the same boat might be going out every weekend yeah. to catch the same fish yeah. uh, with different people. Now, what effect... You, you're talking about the anglers now? Yeah, talking yeah, about yeah, anglers, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So what effect is that having on the on those particular skates? Uh, so it's not really a question of saying, well, the industrial fleet is much worse than the angling. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're looking at the angling may be having a negative impact. Now, mm-hmm. uh, I am pretty sure that any angler uh, who considers themselves conservation-minded would not be comfortable mm-hmm. with the idea that they might be having a negative effect on mm-hmm. the population of these fish. Or that they're getting, getting catch the fish that was caught a week before and two weeks earlier and three weeks earlier. Yeah, yeah. And uh, so that, that is why I come back to the point that what, what we would like to see is good regulation and mm. good measures so that these fish can recover 
Now remember, they're severely depleted. So it's not, we're not trying to pin blame on any one sector. We're trying to put in measures so that the fish can recover right. properly to healthy populations. And that is, that is the priority. And that, I think that would be a great thing for anglers. So that's why yeah. I, I think anglers should uh, support what we're talking absolutely. about. Absolutely. Absolutely. I, I have no doubt about it. You know, before, before we move on on the, on, on the subject of anglers and, 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 and protection, because I, I, I want, you know, there's a, I think it's a story I was um, uh, I was talking about another podcast. But before I go to that, uh, I give I want to give an example of Poland where there is a regulations for anglers on the number of cod that you can catch, uh, which is I you know I raised my hand up I don't remember is it is it either five or eight? Um, it's been probably fifteen years since I was uh, angling for cod in Poland. However, there are there are commercial fleet operating and catching cod. So what's happening is that well, number one in in Poland, mostly there's like old trawlers that are taking anglers, and it doesn't look like like in Ireland where where boats are you know really suited for six people. I know they're taking twelve because that's what P five license says five twelve people, but really they are small boats. In Poland, these are like a big trawlers, and uh. So this is fish. That's a commercial vessel that can otherwise hold the whole, you know, tons of cod. But now they have anglers, which they, which are allowed, you know, five or eight fish. So obviously that creates that kind of well, maybe it's not a gray area, but you know, every angler said like, why, why am I, you know, going out, paying, you know, traveling sometimes from the central Poland, you know, six hundred kilometers, and now I'm allowed to so what's what was happening because that trip to the sea especially from people who live in the mountain or in the central poland was like also to get fish so that was getting to the point where they were catching fish catching cotton with a rod and line you know five eight or whatever it was but then the on the way in they were stopping by another commercial vessel and they were buying you know like a 20 kilo of fish and that was legal so that's the like if if a law doesn't is badly constructed it's not being it's not being followed because like it, it doesn't make sense because then if you have even officer on the shore that said like oh show me how many fish you caught it's like oh i only caught four five what about this 20 more oh i just bought them from this fisherman over there and because of a skipper that that you're in is also commercial fisherman and he knows the other guy then you know and for fishermen that's business too right they're not gonna say like okay lads stop fishing we're going back because you cut your quota so that's i think that's that's still important when you're introducing the those regulations to kind of take both sides so you know it it, it works right i think the the key to uh any exploitation it's good management. Yeah, no and that, that is so, sounds simple, but it's such a hard thing to get your head around. Uh, or certainly it's a, such a hard thing to implement. Certainly we've never seen it in Ireland. Um, people can imagine super trawlers and the enormous capacity they have. I don't to think do people damage. can imagine. It's, it's unimaginable mm. the size of the, mm. of the net that is being mm. dragged. Mm. It's, it's just like... But what I mean is that it seems obvious that a super trawler can do enormous damage. 
whereas it seems harder to understand how somebody mm. with um, a fishing rod can can do damage yeah. anywhere near the scale. Yeah. But there are stories in Ireland where species have gone practically extinct yeah. with no equipment whatsoever. Now, I can give you an example of the purple sea urchin. Purple sea urchin is a little okay. spiky creature that lives. Anybody who's been on their holidays in the Mediterranean might be familiar with it. Mm-hmm. And it used to cover the rocks across the west coast of Ireland, from Kerry all across the coast of Clare, uh, the north coast of Galway Bay. And when they opened a market for purple sea urchins to France in the 1970s, people just went down with bags and put them in bags. And then when they were gone, people went down at low tide. And then when they were gone, people went out with snorkels. And then people went out with scuba diving gear until all the urchins were gone. <laughs> and they're still gone. Yeah. So it comes back to the point about good management. No matter what you're doing, it has to be managed. Whether it's a super trawler or whether it's uh, the angling sector or whether it's aquaculture yeah. or anybody doing anything that's taking things out of the sea. You can imagine fishing for crabs is one of the lowest impact types of fishing we have. You put a basket into the bottom of the sea, the crab calls in, you're not destroying the seafloor, very little bycatch. But what if you've got 20,000 of these baskets on the bottom of the sea? What if you're catching bait to put in the baskets from some other fish population yeah. uh, that isn't regulated? Um, what if those baskets that get, get washed away in, in a storm and they end up catching crabs forevermore? Mm-hmm. Um, these are the problems that we face. This is not a yeah. hypothetical scenario. This is a happening. Nobody can tell you how many pots there are for crabs or lobsters in Ireland. There are thousands and thousands of them okay. because there's no limit. All so, right. Lack of management. Lack of management, that is that is the key. And that is why um, it's always very easy to say, well, you know, look over there at that damage that's being done over there. Mm-hmm. Of course, we want it all regulated. We want the super trawlers regulated. We want the crab fishing regulated. It all has to be regulated. And mm-hmm. um, there are encouraging signs that that is happening. The European Commission has identified the fact that um, smaller boats and the angling sector are not regulated, mm-hmm. and that there's no record of what is being caught and where mm-hmm. it's being caught, and there are regulations being brought in to, uh, to change that. Yeah, yeah. That's very interesting. Listen, and you, ta- you touch on the, on, the, on the EU regulation. And so, so first of all, maybe before I go there, is there much pushback from the, from the commercial sector and angling alike uh, for these initiatives? Uh, you know? Well, I've, I've heard nothing from angling representative bodies. I have uh, okay. had you know, comments from various individual anglers. Yeah. Um, I've had conversations with a number of the state bodies and I've, I've met with Inland Fisheries Ireland yeah. who have a very important role to play. They're the mm-hmm. ones who are supposed to be in charge of, of sea angling and yeah. promoting it. And, um, and at the moment, they're not doing a very good job of promoting the conservation side of things. They're more, it seems to me, they're more interested in promoting the tourist um, uh, dividends that can be yeah. got from sea angling. Whereas conservation really needs to be absolutely uh, front and center in all yeah. of these things but i suppose the you know now is a good moment to kind of talk about bass fishing right because bass fisheries it's 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 big in 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 ireland and in the uk so i suppose that the always the angle on tourism was to show 
that because we, we, there's a ban on commercial fishing for bass you cannot catch the sea bass you cannot sell sea bass and so on and i suppose the angle was always that it is worth a fish in the water is worth more because of a tourism aspect than being caught by commercial fishermen because they were they were i i think it was I don't know, 65, six years ago, there was a big action where it was, uh, I don't know whether it was just rumors or whether it was more than rumors that the Ireland will open commercial fishery for, for sea bass again. And I know that there was like a big pushback and, and even the uh, Bass Angler Society in the UK, I think, uh, was got involved uh, quite, quite in that. So I, I, I think this is, this is how the fishery is trying to promote conservation through showing the value. Um, but I think that this year, angling for sea bass is catch and release only, and and I I heard the comments like a negative comments uh, about that because obviously, you know like most of people I know it doesn't bother because because uh, you know almost everybody I know is catch and release for bass because they slow growing the population collapsed and they start to recover and so on and so on, but then there is a lot of pushback again on the basis like well yeah but the they're still being caught commercially in the UK waters. Why, why the catch and release is kind of imposed on you know anglers rather than do something with a commercial fisher, you know, which, which is which is not not that far away. What's your take on on that on that issue of of catch and release mandatory catch and release bass fishing in Ireland? Yeah, I mean, I can I can see it seems ludicrous, doesn't it, to to be enforcing these restrictions and then be allowing uh, commercial fishing going on in some other parts of the uh, the the fish's distribution. Yeah. So I mean, I have a lot of sympathy for that. the the uh, The bass population is um, is collapsed, as you say. Um, so. I mean, I, I think. And do you mean it's collapsed? It. Collapsed from the state of recovery, or is it like collapsed? Was collapsed and it's still collapsed? Because there is also like for for a number of years, the the number of catch is, um, you know, is less. So do you think that the after that initial rebound, another like a collapse happened? Is is this what you think? Uh, well. Uh, as, f- as far as I know, the the past bass pop, there's no sign yet that bass population is is recovering. Uh, yeah. Well, I mean, from the state in in seventies or where the yeah, where, I, don't, I don't, I don't, I don't know of any evidence that it is rebounding oh, really? or growing. That's very interesting because that is like a common common theme that once the uh, closed season was introduced and once the you know the restrictions were put in place. Uh, the the population start, starts to recover. That's just common, you know. I don't have mm. any data about it, so maybe w- w- this is exactly what you're saying. There's no data that they start recovering. Yeah, and it is monitored. Um, Already. Um, so we probably debunked just just right now in on that podcast. Well, we debunked one of the biggest kind of like oh the population of bus starts to recover and now like yeah that is what you would expect to happen. But look what look what uh, Atlantic salmon. Uh, we've had uh, 10 years now of a ban of drift net fishing. Mm-hmm. The commercial drift net fishermen were told mm-hmm. that the drift net, uh, drift netting for salmon was the problem. Yeah. And that once they stopped, the salmon would come back. Now, the drift netting has stopped and the salmon have not come back. Now, this raises worrying questions about exactly what the state of our sea is 
We have yeah. obviously not only chronic overfishing across the water, we have habitat destruction from trawling. Um, we have unregulated super trawlers. We have climate change. We have pollution. We have all kinds of things that we have thrown at the sea. Mm. And it may well be that some of our uh, marine ecosystems are damaged beyond repair. Yeah, We don't know. We've taken all the sharks out. I mean, uh, we yeah. take millions and millions, yeah. hundreds of millions of sharks out of the yeah. sea every year. Yeah, uh, I think the last, the last Mike, Mako was caught in like 1973, I think. Or? In Ireland? Yeah. Uh, maybe. Now, I'm not sure the Mako was ever a common shark in Ireland, but... Um, I, but around Brit in British waters, in Britain, it, 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 it was because it like at the time, at the, you know, like in, I think in the, it was in the 60s, the blue sharks were, were, were treated as a, as a, you know, like a pest, like, mm. you know, unwanted mm. bycatch because people mm. were going out for makos. Mm. And there's now, now there's, you know, no makos mm. around. So, yeah. Power Beagle's another example. Yeah. Of what they said. Even cod. I mean, cod is a big predatory fish. Yeah. Uh, cod, an adult cod can grow up to seven, eight years of age, can be the size of this dinner table. Mm -hmm. um, and they're big fish. They exert a lot of pressure on the other fish around them in a healthy ecosystem. Now, we have removed all of the big fish around our seas. The cod that we find in Ireland are baby cod. Yes. So they are not playing the role in the ecosystem that, that they, they used to. So we've taken out all of the big predatory fish, not only the sharks and the skates, but the cod and the whiting and the and the big uh, we used to have halibut around the Atlantic coast. All of the turbot are gone. Um, mm. All of these fish are gone. The ecosystem uh, is in tatters. So um, you know, you're talking about bass or salmon or any of these things. These are just tiny little remnants of uh, populations that we're, that we're dealing with at the moment. Got it, got it. So even if anyone thinks that, oh, there's a recovery because this year he got 10 fish and the last year got mm -hmm. three, it's like, yeah, maybe you just got better at catching them. An extra crumb. Yeah, mm -hmm. yeah, 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 yeah. Got that, got that. Um, is it all that bad? Is, is, there, is there any any chance is there any is it all doom and gloom or do we have any you know well hope? i mean we look to uh this is the extraordinary thing i mean ireland is a rich country but if you want to look for uh, uh hopeful examples we have to look to the tropics where uh countries much poorer than than ireland have been addressing these issues and have been creating marine protected areas and getting rid of the damaging uh, fishing practices out of areas. Mm -hmm. And many of them have shown that fish populations bounce back very, very quickly. Yeah. There's one example, for instance, it's well known online, anyone can search for it, is in, um, is in Mexico, where they, uh, they got rid of all commercial fishing out of this small area of mm -hmm. coral reef in Mexico. And within five years, the sea was absolutely teeming with fish again. Now we're told, oh, that's Mexico, it won't work in Ireland, the Atlantic Ocean is different, the water is different, the fish are different, but it has never been tried. And there was an experiment, one very small experiment in Norway, uh, mm -hmm. where they closed off a square kilometre, it was a very small area, yeah. and, uh, and the cod bounced back within two or three years. The cod got bigger, they got older, old fish have more babies, so an, yeah. an, an, an adult female fish produces millions of babies within a few years to see is full of fish again and that is just something that we haven't uh, got our heads around yeah. in ireland yet yeah and do you think there's a chance that this is going to happen 
the uh, the funny thing is that we've already signed up to it. It's already the law, uh, but yet it still hasn't happened. Um, okay. I don't know if it's good or bad. It's probably bad <laughs> if it's supposed to be happening. It's not happening. Yeah, it's it can be quite disheartening when uh, the government signs up to laws. They have said they will create marine protected areas by 2020. So that's not very far away. Yeah, and yet years. they have done absolutely nothing about it. And it's just a double shame because this isn't just about, uh, you know, protecting individual species from extinction. Yeah. Uh, this is about bringing back the livelihoods of people who live along the coast. It's about mm-hmm. there being more fish for recreational anglers, for instance. Yeah. Any recreational angler I've spoken to will tell you that the seas are empty compared to what they were only in the 1980s. Yeah. Anybody who has lived that long, which is not very long, mm-hmm. uh, will tell you the seas are just empty compared to what they were. So we need uh, there's huge opportunities in marine protected areas yes. and good management that I spoke about. Yeah. Yeah, that's everything. Yeah, it's common, like even in African countries also, like a a local economy collapsed. I think it was in Gambia, where Gambia sold uh, uh, rights to fish their waters to the EU. And again, the the super trawlers showed up and within a few years, Mm. it was like there was a big uh, shore angling festival in Gambia, which was moved. I don't don't remember when it was moved. because there was no fish and the local economy, local fishermen, mm. they essentially that that that, that was that was uh, completely uh, wiped the the species uh, fish. Right. So um, I suppose to support these these is 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 there so obviously we can support the, this work and I suppose the lobbying is the word government government through Irish Wildlife Trust. What are the other ways? Uh, you know, like anyone who's listening to that podcast is like terrified um, because I'm I'm terrified, you know, in the state of, uh, you know, you're essentially not saying anything new, but kind of hearing that once again is like, oh, my God, you know, that it doesn't look good. So what what is there anything or does it need to just get to the point where it's going to be so bad that then the commercial sector itself either, you know, stop existing because there's nothing to catch anymore or they start kind of thinking about any conservation measures. Like- well, I'll give you a, a slightly uh, hopeful story then. Please. Um, anglers, in particularly in the southwest of the country, will know about this uh, pair trawling. So mm-hmm. pair trawling is two boats uh, dragging one net between them. Mm-hmm. And particularly towards the end of the year, around November, December, uh, people in Kenmare and West Cork uh, and the Shannon Estuary have seen these pear trawlers come in and they sieve everything out of the water. So mm-hmm. they're targeting these small little fish called sprat, yeah. which then go off to be churned into fish meal. But the sprat really is the basis of the food chain. They're the food for the whales and the dolphins and the bigger fish and the seabirds and everything. So this was uh, uh, has been a pretty damaging situation. Now, anglers in those areas have been very vocal in contacting their local politicians. So this is kind of democracy in action. Uh-huh. Uh, politicians listen to people who are shouting in their ears. Mm-hmm. And uh, we worked with a lot of anglers in uh, Kerry and West Cork to say that, you know, we're going to do a recan from Dublin and from the department lobbying the Department of Agriculture. But you are the people in the local area. You see this happening. You need to 
contact your local politician and tell them why this matters and bring this damage to their attention. Mm-hmm. And uh, a lot of them have done that. Now, the story I say is partly hopeful because earlier this year, the Minister for uh, the Marine, uh, Michael Creed, said that they were thinking about banning pair trawling. So they put a public consultation out there and they let people have their say. Now, we we eagerly await the result of that. But Mm -hmm. we very much hope that the thinking there is that pair trawling in these areas is absolutely bonkers. Yeah. That it is insanely destructive and we need to uh, we need to do something about it. So that's what I say. It's 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 halfway to a hopeful story. Mm -hmm. If it does happen and Mm -hmm. the pair trawling is banned, Local people in that area of Cork and Kerry can say, well, they played a very important role in making it happen. And that goes to show that these things can happen and they do happen. Yeah, yeah because politicians, they listen to enough people. They do. So, so, what's the, so what's the best place to kind of keep in, keep in touch in, in these sort of things, you know, and know where to kind of jump into action and write a letter to your, to your local, you know, politicians? Is it, is it the through Facebook or Twitter or like a, uh, you know, printed media, you know, just to say like, well, if I want to be involved and I want to, you know, write a letter to sing every single time there is something I can, you know, contribute in any way or make my voice heard, what what would be the best way to do it? Um, I, th- I think good old fashioned picking up the phone to talk to your local politician. I mean, particularly in Ireland, mm-hmm. uh, politicians do ring you back. Yeah. Uh, and they do answer emails. Yeah. And uh, they like to be seen to be yeah. addressing local concerns. Yeah. yeah. But in the first place, how do we even know about it? How do we even know that there is a power trolling going oh, on? Oh, that, that, like... that there is an issue. Well, so, yeah. Uh, well, I suppose in this particular example, the, um, the anglers we worked with were, could see it happening. Mm-hmm. You know, they were they were there when they could see the boats yeah. going up and down. Yeah. So, uh, so it's pretty obvious. There's also... Um, uh, whale watching boats in that part yes. of the world who have who have watched how the amount of fish has disappeared because of these uh, mm-hmm. fishing practices. So, I think the point of it all is that we have to get uh, we have to get political about yes. these decisions. Yes, and this. we have to recognise that uh, we are fortunate to live in a democracy and people do have individual power when it comes yeah. to uh, their vote. That's that's very. I mean, that's very important. That's a very important point that um, we can make a difference, especially if enough people will do it. And then when you talked about all your, you know, angling buddies and your friends and your family, and say, hey, this is going. So true education. Uh, and I suppose how to know about the issue, like, like like if if people subscribe, just to I presume a Facebook page or Twitter feed on Irish Wildlife Trust, they can probably hear and, and read about all the issues with badgers and marine wildlife. Oh, very much so, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Listen, I have a I have another question. I actually I have a two two more questions for you. Um a little bit deviating now with leave marine conservation and, and that um I have a question about deer population in Ireland. How what's your so again I'm kind of looking for alternative viewpoint. Uh, because uh, just just this year I, I completed the HCAP, uh, which is Hunter Certified Assessment Program. And anyone you ask about deer population in Ireland, it seems to be like, oh, there's more and more deer, more than ever, and we need to shoot them and call them and so on. And to be honest, that doesn't sit right with me. Because like to the point that like we make early about the badgers, like 
are is there any survey done like how do we know how much deer and like maybe we do so this is like a genuine question how how does it, how does the conservation status of deer various species of deer looks in in, in ireland uh well the simple answer is we have no idea how many deer there are in ireland because nobody has ever gone to count them um deer were quite rare animals in the 1970s the the red deer for instance which is our own sort of native yeah. deer the one in Kerry the one in Kerry yeah and that was reduced to very low numbers yes. uh in, in and it's Kalari. protected and they're all protected mm-hmm. uh the fallow deer was was introduced during Norman times I think mm-hmm. uh, from mainland Europe uh and the Sika deer is an import from Japan mm-hmm. um and the Sika deer are the ones that you'll find mostly around uh Wicklow area mm-hmm So I think from from low levels there's no doubt that the distribution of deer has increased so in other words there are deer now where there were no deer in the past mm-hmm. sometimes people can interpret that as saying mm-hmm. oh look there's millions of deer mm-hmm. just because they weren't there the last time I looked mm-hmm. and now I'm seeing them um but the bottom line is that we don't we have no idea how many deer there are Um right. it may just be that deer are you know changing they're going to other areas we yeah. think for instance in the Kerry area uh deer are being more noticeable in places where in towns where people live mm-hmm. because uh, there's not much for them to eat up in the hills and in the forest um, yeah. there's not there's not much nutrition for them yeah. the uh the national parks they go out and shoot deer occasionally mm-hmm. But there's a big difference between shooting the deer and managing them. Yes. Uh so yes. we're very good in Ireland for shooting things, but uh but we're not so great at actually managing them. Mm. And that because that's the hard part. And uh and deer are a very important uh part of our heritage and yeah. our wildlife. But at the end of the day, uh um ecology requires a predator and we don't have wolves in Ireland. Yeah. And until we get our wolves back, uh deer will not face any serious uh uh pressure on their numbers. Oh, okay. You can look at Scotland for instance where they do count deer and they can see that the deer population has gone up and a lot yeah. in Scotland. Um Scotland is very interesting situation in Scotland because it seems like all the hunting outfits want to keep deer on the hills while the all ecology minded people in the ecological organization they actually want to remove the deer they want to shoot all the deer because they apparently change the landscape and mm. there's no native uh flora anymore in scotland so that's that's quite interesting you know yeah. interesting situation because from the for the casual listener mm. you you would imagine that ecological organizations want to protect all the animals and then the guys like you know they actually want to remove all the deer from the highlands well i think uh, uh in fairness i think a lot of environmental organizations like our own would like to see uh proper ecosystems being restored that means having your predators and your mm-hmm. deer and your small animals and your birds and your plants yeah. everything working together um when you take out a whole layer of an ecosystem like you know we did when we drove our wolves to extinction you mm-hmm. know then the ecosystem isn't working anymore the way that it's yeah. Uh, supposed to yeah and do you think would you like to see the wolves being introduced back in ireland oh i would very much yeah. i think that don't you think that that thing. would create even more problems 
Um, like what? Like you know, I'm looking at the situation where the wolf were introduced in uh, in the United States, where the the animal they where where they introduce their their set the goals how many you know how the recovery looks like and once they achieve the, that recovery now the wolf population also needs to be managed now there's a big pushback because people don't like to see wolf being shot right because they're these majestic beautiful animals so the population of wolves going going up and again there's a problem with far I think that problem is also in Europe in Greece where they obviously f farmers are, you know, the, their livestock being damaged. Uh, the insurance companies don't like wolves anymore because they need to pay farmers money for, for their livestock being killed. Um, hoofed animals are getting killed as well. So there's too many deer, too many wolves than the population of deer and other, you know, goats or, or, or wild sheep is going down. And all that creates like a, so much tension. Uh which probably for the overall for the environment and environmental movement is not good because like oh you have all these various interests you know these people want wolves these doesn't want wolves and so on so and these are much bigger areas than in Ireland so I just do you think that Ireland has enough of wilderness to introduce big predator like wolf? Um, or the or the part uh, of introduction is like oh let's take some of the farmland and turn it into wilderness so we actually have space for them. Uh, I think uh, there's a, there's a lot going on when you start talking about wolves. Uh, if you look at the facts, right? Mm -hmm. Forget about the emotion for a moment. Yes, and I don't want to dismiss that because you know that is important as well. But if we look at the facts, uh, wolves don't need wilderness. There was a wolf recorded this week in Belgium. Mm -hmm. uh, Belgium is as far from wilderness as you'll ever get yeah. and uh, there are wolves there most of the wolves in uh, Europe are in farming landscapes yeah. and they're in mountainous areas so wolves can survive quite well in all kinds of environments they don't need mm -hmm. what humans consider to be wilderness uh, the wolves just need something to eat mm -hmm. <laughs> um so the question of there being enough area in Ireland, there is, there's plenty of area. Mm. Uh, and there's also probably plenty for them to eat. And I'm thinking in terms of the deer numbers mm -hmm. at the moment. Yeah. Um, deer, uh, wolves, historically in Ireland, probably would have eaten wild boar. Of course, we have driven wild boar to extinction as well. Um, and of course, we don't have much forest. But I don't, I think... Uh, if we're going to restore our forests and our bogs and all these things, I think we need to bring these elements of the ecosystem back. Mm -hmm. And the other thing is about how humans feel about living with wolves. This yes. is a much more complex issue because you're dealing with people's complex. psychology and your emotions. And as I say, I'm not trying to dismiss that. But mm -hmm. if, again, you look at the facts of where wolves live in Europe, they live in northern Spain and across eastern Europe and the Alps and then through Italy and Scandinavia, places that have had wolves for a long time don't tend to be controversial. It is where wolves are new, where mm -hmm. they haven't been seen in many decades. People have forgotten what it's like to have wolves around them. The mm -hmm. farmers have forgotten the techniques that they use to protect their sheep Mm -hmm. and their cattle against the wolves. This is where the real controversy and conflict is happening. Yes. Uh, but you go to uh, places, let's say, in the mountains of northern Spain, the farmers there have been living with wolves 
for centuries. They know how to look after their flocks. The level of losses uh, from sheep are very, very low, yeah. uh, relatively speaking. Okay. So the point that it comes down to is uh, coexistence. Can humans tolerate wolves? Can we bring ourselves to, to live with them? Now, it's very easy for me living in a city to say mm -hmm. that, I really want wolves back. Yeah, uh, yeah. because um, people are are putting their they 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 forgot for they they the children cannot walk to school and they organizing buses and so on because they were afraid of wolves. Okay, but again, this is into you know uh, the Brothers Grimm kind of fairy sto mm -hmm. fairy stories. Uh, you have to go back about five hundred years in Europe to find or in Ireland anyway to to find stories of uh, wolf attacks on people. Mm -hmm. I know of no examples anywhere in Europe uh, of a recent attack of a person by a wolf. Oh, recent, yeah, yeah, of course. There's not enough of them. Uh, maybe, maybe, uh, and I'm not saying can't happen. They're they're mm -hmm. they're, they're dangerous. But the point is that the that um, you know, compared to the number of people who get knocked down on the road or something like that, mm. it is a, there is an irrational element to the yeah. wolf uh, that. Oh, again, oh, of course, you imagine you imagine all the newspapers when someone was killed by a wolf. Oh yeah, I can, uh, I can, how many people get killed by a car? Yeah, like, not no no news. Absolutely like, nothing. So again, it comes down to whether we can tolerate. Uh, wildlife. Now in Ireland we have driven so much of our wildlife to extinction. Uh, we have no, nowhere in Ireland that resembles an, a functioning ecosystem or a wild area that has wild animals in it. It is so tame that mm. we have just lost all this relationship to, uh, to nature. Uh, and, and again, as I say, it comes down to this question of tolerance. Now, I would not be in favor of, you know, uh, uh, imposing wolves mm -hmm. on people who live in the countryside. Mm -hmm. But what I hope might happen mm -hmm. is that in time, people will see the benefits of wolves in the landscape, because I think wolves can be really beneficial. Yeah, I doubt people will see it. <laughs> uh, to be honest, I, I doubt without, without any big you know educational mm. campaign that will take generations i mean well, like a farmers not like like farmers you know like you know farmers they don't want, they, they don't even want the goats on their farms well, because they they, they, they um, grazing they presenting grazing competition to their sheep right the farmers start talking want, about wolves to them yeah the farmers didn't in ireland didn't want eagles uh 20 years ago, hmm. they were quite against it, uh, bringing eagles back because they feared for their lambs. Uh, and now we have eagles. Right? Okay, there's not a huge number of them, but the farmers have no problems with them. And the farmers have noticed that where they have eagles, they don't have so many uh, crows to deal with. Yeah. Uh, because the ecosystem it begins to restore itself. Uh, and you take, for instance, farmers spend an awful lot of time shooting foxes mm -hmm. uh, and uh, deer are beginning to be a problem on farmland. Mm -hmm. And uh, there's no substitute for natural control like the wolf can provide for the whole yeah. ecosystem. Yeah. Okay. That's, that's very interesting. I, I, I never expected that we're going to go into talking about wolves, but there's, that's fascinating. You actually have a book about the... Uh, Irish ecosystem that was that was the, you know destroyed really. Can you say a few yeah, words about, about uh, well, your book year and how I, to get I, it? Um, um, I, I wrote a book called Whittled Away, which Whittled is about, Away. You know, Ireland's vanishing nature. So the title is kind of self-explanatory. But really, I felt. Um, 
that it was not widely known just how much nature is disappearing before our eyes in Ireland um, mm. on land and at sea. Like yeah. It literally is just going down the plug hole. Yeah. And do, do you think that the, you know, um, like a development of industry and farming has, has is playing a role here? Because this is my point, you know, it's, it's, all, it's all great. And let's say we can wave the magic wand and you know the the wild boar will will reappear again and the wolves will reappear again and eagles and all that i mean like where right like is it is like expansion of the farmlands and and is is that not playing the role is it is it is it not required so my point is like if we're talking about reintroduction of wild wild animals top predators and so on would it not be well it doesn't have to be supported by programs of buying land of the farmers and saying like well now that land is used for you know i know as you said that maybe we not need that much of the wilderness but at the same time you know those animals were well well eradicated for a reason that, that happened for a reason right well the question of where to put them uh one example would be uh the bogs Mm -hmm. in the Midlands, mm -hmm. which have been destroyed. So less than, uh, less than 1% of the bogs are left. And all of that area uh, has been basically mined out of existence. Mm. Now, Bord Namona, which is the body who has uh, 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 you know, been industrially extracting peat, uh, has said itself that it won't be extracting peat uh, in just a little over 10 years' time. Yeah. And that's quite a big area. I think the area is about 50,000 hectares of land along the River Shannon. Now, those, uh, those peatlands, they will never be bogs again like we knew them, mm -hmm. but they will be, they could be uh, wild areas. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, Quilcha, for instance, Quilcha is the forestry company, mm -hmm. which is, has an enormous uh, amount of land at the moment, which is mostly in plantations of conifers, yeah. which, uh, I mean, you'd struggle to even walk through them, never mind, you know, mm -hmm. expect a wild animal to live in it. Mm -hmm. An awful lot of those forests uh, make a loss. They not only cost taxpayers money, but they pollute the water. And, really? Uh, yeah. They're, That's they're interesting. I, I... Really environmentally damaging. So what if we were to convert... Because it's a monoculture? It's because it's a monoculture, they have to be sprayed with pesticides, they're ah, sprayed with okay. fertilizers no. that get into the soil. No, no, um, no. They're no. an absolute disaster. Uh, so there's this huge area of land that could be transformed into native forest. So I'm talking about land that's already owned by the public. Yeah, and uh, it's not making money, like you're no, saying, it's making loss. No, there's absolutely no logic to what's going on at the moment. So we could have uh, rewilded areas of bogs, we could have new native forests uh, at very little public expense, and they would be amazing places for wildlife, they would be beautiful recreational areas, they would provide clean water, they would help us meet our climate change targets, they would do all these things that our land use at the moment is failing utterly to do. Mm, okay. And to, to, to help support all that, the best thing to do is to become a member of Irish Wildlife Trust. Absolutely, number one. That's perfect. Mm. Listen, one last question. There's a, lot of, there's a lot of talk recently about the Heritage Bill, which uh, is very damaging uh, to the environment and, and, and birds. Can you, can you just uh, 
take take a few minutes and explain to our listeners what's the problem with the heritage bill and um why I suppose there are two main problems with the Heritage Bill. One is the obvious one and the other one is the not so obvious one. The obvious one is that the, the Heritage Bill changes the dates for hedge cutting and burning so that you can basically extend the dates for cutting hedges and burning vegetation into the season where birds are nesting. So there's a very clear um, threat there to our bird populations and our Uh, mountain habitats, mm-hmm. which are already pretty much uh, ruined. Yeah. Um, that is that is the obvious problem. The uh, the not so obvious problem, which I really had difficulty with, was how easily the government was able to weaken the few wildlife laws that we have at the behest mm. of uh, the big farming organizations. Yeah, basically there was. There was there was public consultation which was done after the decision was made. Yeah. The, the successive the favorite ministers way of, favorite yeah, way of public consultation. Yeah, allows them to say there was consultation. Most people didn't want it, so they went ahead and did what they wanted to do anyway. There was no uh, engagement with environmental groups throughout the three years. Uh, the most recent minister refused to meet environmental groups. Um, During the three years that it was being debated, there was no scientific information gathered. There was no impact assessment. And what really uh, worried me more than the provisions of the actual legislation was the fact that our nature and our natural heritage could just be thrown in the dustbin like that like at the not, behest like of, a, of a big lobby group like that yeah which i think is an appalling uh yeah. precedent yeah and so when we're talking about the habitat destruction and the, and the destruction of the wildlife you mentioned big farming industry so are the farmers really the the ones to blame i'm making air quotes here and i, I don't want you you know get you in the trouble for for saying that but that's you know we we said like commercial fishing is a problem in a in a in a sea in the for the marine wildlife is it like a farming a problem really because i I've, i thought that the farmers probably should be again the ones who are kind of working together with the you know conservation organization because they're on the land they're living on the land yeah absolutely yeah yeah um we're very careful when we talk about this issue because we talk about like agriculture is the number one threat to our environment at the moment and that's not just me saying that that mm-hmm. is uh reports from the environmental protection agency identified agriculture as the number one yeah. cause that's, of that's logical and that's what's all over the world there's data behind it is agriculture is the number one source of greenhouse gas emissions the national parks and wildlife service in their reports say agriculture is the biggest driver of habitat loss and degradation in the country that's a fact Mm. Uh, we don't blame farmers because we know so many farmers and many farmers that we speak to are very enthusiastic about nature and they want to do the right thing Mm. but agriculture as it exists today is entirely dependent on state subsidies In order to get the subsidies, you have to tick the boxes from the Department of Agriculture. If the inspector comes and finds that you have bushes at the back of the field, mm-hmm. which may be wonderful wildlife habitat, then you get docked money. You get less uh, payment from the Department of Agriculture. Mm-hmm. I totally understand that uh, any individual, their household income is going to be your number one priority. Yeah. Uh, that everybody just wants to look after their family, pay their mortgage, mm. all that kind of stuff. So um, 
This is what's driving the problem. It's not individual choices made by farmers. They don't get up in the morning and decide, I'm going to hack away at that, those shrubs at the back of the, the farm. They are living in fear that the inspector is going to come along and penalise them for something that uh, they haven't mm. done. We have a government programme at the moment that drives intensification of farmland, promoting spraying of chemicals, draining land, uh, removing scrub and habitats, uh, reseeding pastures with uh, the same type of grass. Mm. Uh, and all of these things are responsible for the collapse in bee populations, the collapse in farmland bird populations. And until we can get that right, until we can address the environmental problems in agricultural uh, policy, uh, we won't see an improvement in the situation. Now, my main difficulty, just to finish the point, is that the big farming lobbies have zero interest in environmental protection. This is not logical because farming is more than my job or maybe your job. Farming depends entirely on the climate, the soil, the water, the yeah. nature. And yet there, you wouldn't think it by listening to their lobby groups, which persistently and continuously campaign to weaken wildlife laws like the heritage bill to weaken measures to prevent pollution to make sure that uh, any programs to protect wildlife are diluted to the point where they don't mean anything this is why farmers get paid to put bird boxes uh, at the back of their garden or back of their farm when uh, none of our endangered birds will lay an egg in a nest box so uh, we're paying for all of this. Uh, the farmers are doing it because they're getting the money for it. And it's doing absolutely no good whatsoever uh, for our extinction crisis. This is, like, this is a little bit like with a, with a commercial fisherman. They also should, you know, in their interest should be a lot of fish in the, in the ocean. Yet it's that, that sector that lobbies for more quotas. And, and, mm. and Okay, all the same, all the same. Um, Parik, thank you very much. It's been it's been really really amazing and very educational uh, for for everybody. So uh, if you all listening to that and and want you know want to support uh, wildlife and habitat, Irish Wildlife Trust. Is it like IrishWildlifeTrust.com? It's iwt.ie. Uh, you'll also find us on Facebook and Twitter. Right, right. So go out there, people, and uh, get involved. Parik, thank you very much. Thank you, Tommy. And as usual, um, thank you very much for listening. That was another episode of Tommy's Outdoors podcast, episode 20. Um, so, yeah, I hope you already subscribed to the podcast. If you didn't, then go ahead and do so. Subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, TuneIn, or whatever you are getting your podcast. Also, follow us on Twitter at Outdoors Podcast. And follow us on Instagram at Tommy Seldors and like us on that Facebook at Tommy Seldors. So thank you very much and until the next time, bye bye. You just listened to an archived episode of the Tommy Seldors Conservation and Science Podcast. I invite you to take a moment and listen to one of the most recent episodes. I'm sure you'll enjoy it.